Good afternoon. Happy Halloween. Ooh. I'm Paul Levengood, President and Chief Executive Goblin of the Virginia Historical Society. You know, it occurred to me, Halloween is kind of a confusing day for kids, if you ask me, because we spend 364 days of the year telling them not to take candy from strangers, and then one day saying, go beg for candy from those folks. So um, it's a little strange. Welcome to today's Banner Lecture here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. And as always, I'd like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. Now, before we proceed with today's program, let me take a moment and remind you of our next Banner Lecture, which will take place here in two weeks on November 14th at noon. And that day, Beth O'Leary, who some of you may know from her work uh, next door at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, will be here to talk about Carillon, the story of a Richmond community, kind of a neighborhood history that she's done. So that is November 14th at noon. Our next gallery walk, where you accompany a curator through an exhibit uh, upstairs in our galleries, will take place at noon on Wednesday, November 13th. Uh, VHS lead curator Bill Rasmussen will conduct a new version of a popular tour that he's given before entitled Good Art or Bad Art, What's the Difference? So if you've ever asked that question or been asked that question, I hope you'll come join Bill on the 13th. As always, you can find more information about upcoming lectures and gallery walks or register for our bus trips, behind-the-scenes tours, and our classes either online at vahistorical.org or uh, at the museum shop when you leave today. Now, even if your ringtone happens to be something seasonally appropriate, like the Monster Mash or the theme to the Adams Family, please take your cell phone out now and silence it so you do not disturb our speaker. Thank you. <laughs> well, everyone knows about John Wilkes Booth, the man who killed Abraham Lincoln on April 14, 1865. But what about Mary Surratt, the boarding house keeper who, quote, kept the nest that hatched the egg of assassination and was the first woman ever executed by the U.S. government? Or her son John, a Confederate courier and companion to Booth. He fled through Canada and Britain to Vatican City, ending up as a papal zouave until he was chased across the Mediterranean and hauled back to the United States for trial. Well, today's speaker will trace the checkered career of this notorious family, who also feature prominently in his first historical novel, The Lincoln Deception, which explores unanswered and perhaps unanswerable questions about the Lincoln assassination conspiracy. After practicing law for more than 25 years, David O. Stewart turned to writing history, though he still practices law in Washington, D.C., although, as he put it, just a little bit at this point. His first book, The Summer of 1787, The Men Who Invented the Constitution, was a Washington Post bestseller and won the Washington Writing Award as Best Book for 2007. He followed this with two more books, Impeached, the Trial of President Andrew Johnson and the Fight for Lincoln's Legacy, and American Emperor Aaron Burr's Challenge to Jefferson's America, uh, and about which he spoke here, you might remember. Uh, and both of those books were bestsellers. This past August, 
David published his first novel, The Lincoln Deception, which explores the secrets behind the Booth conspiracy. Copies of that book, which Publishers Weekly has called an impressive debut novel, are available in our museum shop, and he will certainly be willing to sign those after. They make great holiday gifts. I hate to tell you folks, but we're almost in November. Uh, currently, David is working on a nonfiction project that examines the extraordinary achievements and partnerships of James Madison, which he hopes will be published in the second half of 2014. So please join me in a warm uh, VHS welcome for David Stewart, who will speak to us on a most appropriate topic for Halloween, Family of Assassins. Thank you very much, Paul, and uh, thank you all for coming out. Uh, I trust you've all got your candy. I'm a little disappointed that we don't have, I haven't yet seen anyone in costume. Um, figured we'd at least get a couple of top hats and uh, something like that. Um, as Paul mentioned, uh, this is my first novel uh, after uh, three historical narratives. Uh, and it grew out of the research I was doing on the impeachment trial book, Impeached, which is about the Andrew Johnson case. And it all revolves around this fellow, uh, John Bingham. Uh, Bingham was uh, a Republican congressman from the eastern uh, Ohio, a town called Cadiz. If you were a Spanish speaker, you might be tempted to pronounce it as Cadiz, but um, in Ohio, it's Cadiz. Uh, and it's a farming community in, uh, close to the coal country. Uh, Bingham was a staunch anti-slavery man, uh, had been a, a Republican before the war, a uh, Republican congressman before the war uh, and during the war. Uh, he also served uh, as Judge Advocate General in the Army. Uh, he was a leader of the Andrew Johnson impeachment effort, which is why I got to know him and was researching him. He also was the author of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment that guarantees us uh, due process of law and equal protection of the laws, really the second uh, constitution. Uh, it was adopted in 1868, and so we have a good bit to thank him for and uh, remember him for, although he's not often remembered. And one part of his career that is rarely remembered is that he was the lead courtroom prosecutor for the Booth co-conspirators. Uh, and tried the case. It lasted uh, a bit over a month in the summer of 1865. Uh, Bingham's theory during the trial was that Jefferson Davis ordered the assassination. He actually brought in three witnesses who testified about things they'd overheard from Confederate uh, Secret Service officials and documents they'd seen which indicated, which supported that hypothesis. And based on that uh, trial theory, he'd won convictions of all eight of the defendants. Uh, somewhat uh, shortly after the, uh, the trial, at least two of those witnesses were demonstrated to be uh, really chronic liars um, who recanted their story. One was really almost a legendary uh, flim-flam artist, a fellow named Charles Dunham in Sanford Can Conover. He had a number of aliases. Um, which very much threw uh, a lot of shadow on the theory. You may remember that Davis was 
captured at the end of the war and was held in prison for two years on this theory that he had ordered the assassination and finally the government just sort of let him go because the theory had been uh, come into such disrepute. So when I was uh, researching uh, my book, I was looking into Bingham, I came upon a rather obscure biography of him from some 40 years ago by a scholar out in Ohio. Uh, it's one of these books that comes out of the bowels of the Library of Congress and you can tell it hasn't been looked at for 30 years. <laughs> and it has a single paragraph that describes a story that really uh, fascinated me. Uh, Bingham died 35 years after the Booth conspiracy trial. Uh, it was in 1900. And on his deathbed, he told a story to the, his family physician. He said that during the trial, he had uh, a conversation with Mary Surratt, whom Paul has already introduced, uh, the woman who kept the nest that hatched the egg of assassination, and that Mrs. Surratt had told him something electrifying, and that he had always been afraid that if that secret had gotten out, it would destroy the republic. He only told one other person, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, Lincoln's rock during the war, and Stanton agreed with him that they couldn't let this secret out. And then Bingham said, Stanton took the secret to his grave, and now the secret will die with me. Whereupon he died. <laughs> so, uh, if you write history books, this is a problem. He needed to keep talking. Um, so I walked around for a couple of years with this in my mind, and I'd tell this story to friends, and they'd say, so, so what's the secret? I'd say, oh, I don't know. Um, and after a while, it, it finally occurred to me, well, I could make one up. Uh, people do that all the time. So that was what led me down the road to this book. Um, and it led to practical questions, which is the basis for the talk I'm going to deliver today, because I believe in historical fiction. I love historical fiction, but I believe that historical fiction cannot mess with the things we know are true. Uh, that's just not fair. Um, I, I find this crystallized in a f slogan which I like, which is, Lincoln has to be tall. Um, and so I had to figure out how to reinvestigate this matter 150 years later. Um, and my trail began with Mary Surratt, and so will yours. Uh, this is an image of the Booth conspiracy. Um, there was quite a fascination at the time of the trial with Mary Surratt. Uh, the gentle sex was not expected to produce assassins in this time frame. Uh, I like this image which came from a magazine because, you know, as you'll note, they've put Mary in the middle as the principal figure in the assassination and poor old Booth is relegated to a position of orbit around her. Um, it's not entirely fair to Mrs. Surratt, uh, but there was something compelling and still compelling about a woman's role in an assassination conspiracy um, and also the role of her son. Uh, Mother-son crime teams are not a staple of our 
daily experience, really, except for Ma Barker and her boys. I'm not sure we've had much in that uh, line. So it's a story that does uh, provide some compelling questions. Uh, Mary grew up in southern Maryland, uh, southern Prince George's County. Uh, southern Maryland then and even today was really culturally quite southern, um, more than uh, Maryland was is described as a border state back then, but that part of Maryland was very much associated with the southern feeling. Uh, the economy was a lot of tobacco farms. Slavery was the standard. Um, and she was sent to school in Alexandria uh, as a young teenager, as a young girl, uh, a Catholic boarding school. So she was an educated woman. Uh, she converted to Catholicism. She'd not been raised in her family as a Catholic, but became a very devout woman, uh, and returned home and married a fellow, uh, John Surratt, uh, who was also from the same community. Now, Surratt began as a farmer, uh, but then he and Mary opened uh, a tavern uh, a crossroads, at a crossroads in Prince George's County. Uh, it was very successful business. Uh, they, uh, it was an inn, they would put people up for the night. Uh, they also uh, developed a smithy and a, a carriage shop. You can think of it really as sort of a service station for the uh, horse-drawn uh, culture. And they farmed the land around them they, they owned a few slaves. They had some prosperity. They were not wealthy, but they were successful. Uh, John became the federal postmaster. And they named the little community they were creating uh, after him, so it became Surrattsville. That was the post office address. Uh, after the assassination and the trial, the people in Surrattsville decided that was not a great name. And they, have, they changed it to Clinton. Um, <laughs> You know, when you prepare these talks, you, you think you're going to maybe say something funny. I, when I first gave this talk, I didn't know that that was going to be funny. Um, <laughs> but it, it turns out uh, to tickle people. Um, uh, John, though, uh, had a drinking problem, and he declined a good bit. He was older than Mary, and he, then he did die in 1862. Uh, much of the management of the place had been left to her as he was declining, and then she really took over the tavern in her own right. The Surratts were a very Confederate family when the Civil War began, when secession happened. Uh, their older son, Isaac, joined the Confederate Army in Texas and fought with them through the war. Uh, and their younger son, John Jr., uh, will be a focus of my talk. Uh, he became, as Paul said, a Confederate courier and spy. Uh, John Jr. did succeed his father as postmaster, and this tavern became a way station in the early years of the war for Confederate agents and couriers, uh, particularly with agents coming from Richmond. It was very convenient to have them go across the Potomac uh, to southern Maryland and then work their way uh, into uh, the, the Union states. Um, they had a awfully simple way to get messages to their agents in the North. Uh, it's sort of embarrassingly simple. Uh, they would 
smuggle the messages across the Potomac and give them to people like John Surratt and other postmasters in Southern Maryland, many of whom were Confederate sympathizers, and the postmasters would put them in the mail, and the <laughs> post office would deliver them uh, quite without worry for rain or snow or sleet of night. Um, John uh, was a, became a Confederate agent himself at a very young age. He was 18 or 19 and continued in that role through the war. He was quite a daring fellow. You can get a look at him here. He's pretty, he's a nice looking fellow. Uh, he was known as a, as a bit of a dandy. He was a clothes horse, uh, cared a great deal about his appearance. Uh, he hid secret messages in the planks of his buggy or in the boot, uh, heel of his boot. Uh, and he was quite contemptuous after the war about the Union detectives who uh, would pursue him, and he, he had to evade them or, and was searched by them on a number of occasions. He said they were stupid and they had no idea how to search a man. Uh, and then in late 1864, Surratt has a momentous meeting with John Wilkes Booth, the famous actor. Uh, indeed, Surratt may well have introduced Booth to the Confederate Secret Service and was introduced to Booth by a fellow, Dr. Samuel Mudd, who's uh, a somewhat notorious name in all of this, who was a neighbor of his in Southern Maryland, a neighbor of Surratt's, uh, and had a lot of connections with uh, the Confederate uh, agents in the area. Now, in the fall of 1864, the Surratts moved. They left the tavern. Uh, Mary leased it out to uh, the manager there and took over this property in what is now downtown Washington, uh, which her, her husband had owned. Um, it's still standing there. This, I, I, Love this image of it. This is what it looks like today because it houses an Asian fusion restaurant. Um, it is on 8th Street between 6th and 7th. I encourage you to, to go take a look at it sometime. The interior has been changed a good bit to make room for the dim sum table. But the exterior is unchanged. And it, this is what it looked like, uh, I, except for the air conditioner. Um, and I do find this a fascinating coincidence that the Surratts moved to Washington in late 1864 at the same time that Booth is beginning to assemble his team, uh, which will begin as a kidnapping team and morph into an assassination team. Uh, this boarding house, and she opened a boarding house in this space, uh, really does become the emotional center of the Booth conspiracy, uh, and certainly the physical center. Many meetings happened in the boarding house. Uh, several of the uh, people in the conspiracy stayed in the boarding house through the months of preparation. Not through the whole time, but for, for some nights here and there. And of course, John Surratt was there when he was not running errands for the Confederate government. So I want to start with Booth, but before we get there, I want to think a little bit or ask you to think about presidential assassins. We've had four assassinations in this country. And these are the other three. Uh, the fellow in the upper left is Charles Guiteau, who killed James Garfield. Uh, the gentleman below him is Leon Shawgosh, who killed William McKinley. And then, of course, Lee Harvey Oswald, more familiar to us, for killing Kennedy. Um, there are a couple of the features of these fellows. One is um, 
they might scare you if they showed up uh, at your door asking uh, trick-or-treating. Um, they're not impressive-looking people. They were not successful people. They were really uh, leaving a small footprint in life. Um, and we have, I think, a, a notion of assassins uh, as a bit uh, life's losers, uh, people either with a grudge or a delusion that leads them to do this sort of terrible thing. Uh, so let's compare them to John Wilkes Booth. You know, the most obvious point is he's a lot better looking, but he was a very different figure. He was a terrifically successful actor. Uh, he was the scion of the most prominent theatrical family in the country. His father had been a great star of the stage and traveled the whole country, uh, Junius Booth. And his brothers, two brothers, Edwin Booth and Junius Booth, his brother, were equally distinguished. Uh, Edwin was probably the greater actor. John Wilkes had performed for a number of years. He was only 26 at the time of the assassination, still a young man. He was the youngest of the brothers, uh, but was known across the country, had traveled with touring shows, and was a celebrity. It's interesting to think that when Booth walked down a street in the United States in 1865, he would probably be recognized by somebody. This is very different from the other assassins. Um, there is this one image I, I can never resist showing. Uh, Booth did not, uh, John Wilkes Booth did not actually perform on stage for nearly a year before the assassination, except for one benefit performance he gave in New York of Julius Caesar and with his brothers. And this is a photograph taken while they were preparing for this. And that's John Wilkes on the far left. He uh, had shaved his mustache for the performance. And then uh, Junius and his brother Edwin is at the far right. And just to show you that life does not always imitate art, uh, John Wilkes was portraying Mark Antony, the loyal one, and his brothers portrayed the assassins, Cassius and Brutus. Uh, now, when you get to early 1865, Surratt, the Surratt boarding house is really full of activity. Uh, Surratt and Booth jointly, John Surratt Jr. and Booth are developing a plan to kidnap Lincoln. The plan involves whisking him down to Richmond and then holding him for ransom. Uh, and to get in return for Lincoln, uh, the release of as many Confederate soldiers who are being held as prisoners of war as possible. The, the combatants during the war had exchanged prisoners very readily in the early parts of the war, and that had ended. Uh, it created tremendous strain on both sides trying to care for prisoners of war, but also, obviously, if you have a manpower shortage, as the Confederate Army did, it's a terrible problem. Um, Surratt began recruiting participants for this kidnapping plot, uh, and he used two agents to help him. This is Dr. Samuel Mudd. Uh, and Mudd, as I mentioned, had connections with the Confederate uh, agents in Southern Maryland and helped uh, Surratt connect with others and helped Booth connect with others. And he's the one who put Booth and Surratt together. And also, 
This fellow, Thomas Harbin, who was another Confederate spy in Southern Maryland, uh, who also assisted in this. They recruited individuals for specific tasks. Lewis Powell, uh, who went by the name Lewis Payne, which is the name I prefer to use. I actually was a law clerk to <laughs> Justice Lewis Powell. <laughs> and I find it awkward in the extreme that one of the assassins was had that name. So I will refer to him as Payne. Uh, he was a Confederate veteran. He was the only one of them who'd actually fought in the war. Uh, he was a large man, a violent man. Uh, this photo series, and this is just one of a number of photos that were taken of him in prison, uh, it quite clearly seems that uh, the photographer fell in love with him. Uh, it is lighted in a striking way. They all look wonderful, it, straight out of a GQ photo shoot, frankly. Um, the second fellow is this one, uh, George Atzerodt. Uh, the photographer did not fall in love with him. Uh, <laughs> Atzerodt was a, a German immigrant and uh, was a waterman. Uh, he worked on the river, and he was to operate the boats that would uh, bring Lincoln across the Potomac. Uh, this fellow was David Harold. Uh, he was an outdoorsman, really from southern Maryland. Uh, he knew all the secret byways and highways in the area and was expected to serve as a guide. And during the assassination, after the assassination, he was the man who kept Booth away, uh, or helped him hide for 11 days after the assassination. All of these people became habitués of the Surratt House. Uh, and then in March, they were joined by two more. These are Booth's uh, school friends, actually, from Baltimore, uh, Samuel Arnold and Michael O'Laughlin. Uh, they were deeply involved in the kidnapping attempt. And the goal was to waylay Lincoln. And this was attempted finally uh, in mid-March of 1865 to waylay him on his way to an a amateur theatrical performance uh, at a hospital, the Campbell Hospital uh, in Washington where Union soldiers were being held to recuperate. This is an image of the hospital uh, from the time and is a shows you what a simple place it was. Uh, I was really sort of surprised to discover that it was on Florida Avenue between 5th and 7th Streets in Washington, which puts it, frankly, less than a mile away from the Surratt House. It was quite close. Uh, and they were, uh, they heard, received word that Lincoln was going to be going there. They mustered in 45 minutes and lined the, uh, the woods along the road and then we're very disappointed to discover that only uh, Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase, he may have been Supreme Court Justice by then, uh, but Chase was the fellow who came by instead of Lincoln and they decided nobody was gonna ransom Salmon Chase. <laughs> so they let him go and they went back to the Surratt boarding house to uh, 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 lick their wounds and try to figure out what to do next. Uh, the conspiracy then morphs into an assassination. Uh, the documentation for this is, is largely non-existent as to how it changed. The versions of it, uh, we don't really know. Uh, there is a sort of prevailing legend that sort of Booth just woke up one morning and said, uh, let's kill the president. Uh, and 
I have to say that's the one version of the facts I find least persuasive. But we do know that on April 14, 1865, Booth went to Ford's Theater in the evening and was able to get access to the president and shot him from behind and then made his escape across the stage and out the uh, stage door. It is different from the other presidential assassinations, though, that I mentioned earlier. In those instances, we had a single shooter and a single target, the president. Uh, Here, we are looking at, of course, the president was the principal target, but also Vice President Johnson. Johnson was staying at the Kirkwood House Hotel. Uh, He'd only been in Washington for five Uh, five weeks since the inauguration, we had no official residence for the vice president at the time. And George Atzerodt was sent to kill Johnson. Atzerodt was not made of particularly stern stuff. Uh, He uh, had second thoughts. He stepped into the bar to fortify his courage. Uh, It had an opposite reaction, um, and he took off. He just never even knocked on the door. he was finally uh, arrested in Gaithersburg. Uh, William Seward, the Secretary of State, was also targeted. He was nowhere near as lucky. Lewis Payne was sent to his house. Uh, Payne broke into the house. Uh, Seward was in bad shape already. He had been in a carriage accident about 10 days before, had broken his jaw, dislocated his shoulder, so he was not do- doing well. Uh, Payne uh, beat both of Seward's sons over the head. He fractured the skull of one of them. Uh, He tried to shoot Seward and his gun misfired. So he pulled out a long knife and started slashing. He slashed Seward in the face and on the arm. Uh, Seward's male nurse, who was trying to care for him, tried to restrain Payne. He was stabbed a couple of times as well. And finally, Payne left. Astonishingly enough, he did not actually kill anyone, but he left quite a slaughterhouse behind him. The fourth target is sometimes forgotten. It's General-in-Chief Ulysses Grant. Grant was supposed to be in the booth with the president that night. Instead, he went to the beach. <laughs> it's a good decision. Uh, he had, on, he had taken Lee's surrender only five days before. He'd not seen his family much, of course, for many months. And his wife prevailed upon him that day to go join their children in Long Beach, New Jersey, where they were waiting. So that afternoon, he boarded a train for New Jersey. Uh, Mrs. Grant, in her memoirs written many years later, recounts three separate occasions, including one on the train, when they were confronted by or accosted by people she is quite convinced and was at the time were sent to do harm to her husband. Uh, Nothing came of the incidents, but it seems to me quite clear that Grant was also a target. So what you have is not a single assassination, but really a decapitation of the Union government was the intention. It's not really how we tend to think of it. Now, Booth made his escape. Uh, He broke his leg, either jumping from the uh, balcony or when his uh, horse uh, rolled over on him. Uh, It's a 
dispute between assassination devotees. I uh, can't tell the difference, but I know that the people who uh, find, find that the horse broke his leg, they find that a very disappointing story. It lacks the drama and joie de vivre. Um, Booth was finally tracked down after 11 days at large in Virginia. Uh, he was trapped in a barn which a uh, squad of soldiers set on fire and then he was shot uh, while in the barn and died. Uh, there were eight conspirators though who were tried before a military commission. They were all rounded up frankly before Booth was, was uh, finally circled. Uh, I hope this image comes through. It's a little dark. I apologize for that. This is the military commission that tried him, uh, tried the eight conspirators. Uh, and you can see the officers are all in their uniforms. There were nine of them. Uh, it was, it's the same procedure, in essence, that we use today for the Guantanamo trials, for the uh, people we've been holding there for so long. Uh, it is the two gentlemen on the far right who are not wearing uniforms uh, are Henry Holt, uh, the judge advocate general at the time, and the smaller gentleman who's third from the right is Bingham. Uh, they were the lead prosecutors, and speaking as a longtime defense lawyer, there's something awful about seeing the judges hanging out with the prosecutors, um, <laughs> but that's the way it was. Uh, now... Mary was defended by really a, a big-time lawyer. Uh, Reverdy Johnson was a United States senator from Maryland, had been for a number of years. He had actually argued in the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott case, the notorious case where the court upheld slavery, and he had been the winning lawyer. He had argued for the, uh, that slavery was, uh, should be enforced. Uh, he however, came only for the first week of trial when the, everybody was making big speeches and making legal maneuverings. When it got down to the witnesses themselves, he suddenly disappeared and did not reappear at the trial. And so Mary Surratt was defended by two really quite rookie uh, lawyers from his office uh, who, you know, I speak as a, as a lawyer myself, were, were not really up to the task. Um, they didn't do a terribly good job. Another lawyer of interest to me uh, is this fellow, Thomas Ewing. Uh, he had been a Union Army general uh, out west, uh, and perhaps more interesting, he was brother-in-law to uh, William Tecumseh Sherman. Uh, and he represented uh, uh, three of the more minor characters, Dr. Mudd and Samuel Arnold among them. Now four were sentenced to hang. All eight were convicted. Four were sentenced to hang. Uh, Mary Surratt was one. It was the first time that the United States government would execute a, uh, a woman, along with Louis Payne, George Atzerodt, and David Harold. Uh, this is an image that the government made sure to get out and around the country to sh try to reassure the North, at least, that uh, justice had been done, that there had been swift vengeance on the conspirators. Uh, the, the hangings took place at what is now Fort McNair in Washington. If you are at our ballpark, the Nationals' ballpark there, uh, it's, Fort McNair is about three blocks to the west, 
and you can look through the fence and if you see the tennis courts, the, the scaffold was at the back of the tennis courts. Um, and it was a major press event. Uh, there were, they made sure that uh, the word got out. Uh, the other four were convicted to life in prison and sent to uh, Fortress Jefferson in the Dry Tortugas, which is many miles west of Key West, Florida. Uh, this image was the best I could come up with, and I sort of re regret it. It makes it look a little like a Club Med spot. Um, <laughs> it was a hole. It was terrible. Uh, uh, lots of fever. Uh, people, uh, the survival rate was not high. And you can tell that there's nothing there but the fort. Um, that's all there is. Uh, there was a fever epidemic while they were imprisoned there. Uh, and they, uh, this was uh, the two men from Baltimore, Arnold and O'Loughlin, uh, Dr. Mudd and uh, Edmund Spangler, whose crime was that he held Booth's horse during the assassination outside the theater. Uh, they were there for four years until Andrew Johnson uh, Part, uh, commuted their uh, sentences and they were released and allowed to, go, allowed to go home. This was not in time for O'Loughlin who did die there uh, during a fever outbreak. Uh, so there's somebody missing from this picture and it's John Surratt. Uh, he's sometimes referred to as the man who got away. Uh, other times he's referred to as the man who let his mom take the fall for him. Uh, his location on April 14, 1865, at the time of the assassination, was in fact a hotly disputed issue. And when he, he did face trial two years later, uh, he had taken messages in early April up to Confederate agents in Montreal. There, were, there was a group of them there that had been trying to figure out ways to create uh, tumult uh, on the northern border of the Union. Uh, he claimed that he went from there to Elmira, New York. And this is an image of the uh, prison camp in Elmira, uh, that there was a scheme to try to get the Confederate prisoners of war to break out, again, open a second front, and that he was sent to case the joint to make sketches of it. Uh, at his trial, there were five witnesses who said they saw him in Elmira on April 14, 1865. And it's striking, I, I mentioned that he was a, a clothes horse. All five of the witnesses were either tailors or haberdashers <laughs> who, who claimed that Surratt had worn a distinctive Duke of Norfolk jacket that nobody else in Elmira had ever worn. Uh, the federal prosecutors, though, produced 13 witnesses who swore that they saw John Surratt in Washington on April 14, 1865, and they presented lots of evidence of railroad timetables from Montreal and back to Montreal, which demonstrated that he certainly could have done that. So this remains one of the disputed issues. Uh, there is no dispute, though, about Surratt's escape. He fled to Canada where he was hidden by Catholic clergy. Uh, he claimed that while he was there, he didn't know that Mary was really at risk. He knew that there was a trial, but he thought that he, he received word that there was no risk that she would be convicted, so therefore he saw no reason to come back. 
you know, when your mother's on trial for the assassination of the president, it seems to me there's some risk. Um, but that was his story. He was spirited to Britain. Uh, he, he traveled in, uh, under assumed name and with uh, f uh, you know, fake mustache and uh, glasses, dyed his hair, uh, where he again was hidden by Catholic clergy, uh, got across Britain, across France, and landed in Rome, where, as Paul mentioned, he became a papal zouave. Now, for those of you who are Civil War uh, experts will know that the zouave uniform was very hot in the 1860s. It was modeled on North African soldiers. It had red sashes and baggy pantaloons and f all sorts of fancy stuff and fezes. And uh, it was just thought to be way cool. So we had southern units that were zouave units. We had union units that were zouave units. And the pope had his own zouave unit. And this is a time, this is just at the end of the papal states being independent before the uh, uh, final formation of Italy. So the pope actually had an armed force, and Surratt signed up in it. Uh, he served in the Zouaves for close to a year um, when another American, actually a fellow from Baltimore, if you can believe it, um, was also a Zouave and recognized him and blew the whistle on him with American diplomatic officials in Italy that John Surratt was hiding in the Zouaves. Uh, the Americans arranged for him to be arrested by the Zouaves. Surratt made a hair's breadth escape, probably tipped off by his fellow Zouaves, but again, it's sort of murky. He, he hightailed it to Naples, where he hid in the city jail. He decided that was the best place. <laughs> uh, and the, some of the story does sound like 19th century version of Day of the Jackal. Um, he then strikes up a friendship with a gentleman who comes to us only by the description of a British gentleman. And the British gentleman buys him a ticket on a steamer to Alexandria in Egypt. And uh, Surratt gets on the boat. It takes actually several weeks to get over there. There was a lot of quarantine issues. He finally gets off the boat in Egypt and is arrested by American officials who have been able to trail him there. He is still wearing his Zouave uniform. It made it easy to pick him out, I'm sure. Um, and was brought back to face trial in the United States. He comes back to a very different country. It's 1867. People are trying to put the war behind them. Uh, back in, when his mother went on trial, uh, there were still Confederate armies in the field down in Texas. Uh, not in 1867, obviously. Uh, so he can't, he's not tried before a military commission. He gets a regular trial in a civil court, uh, and he gets a jury. And Washington at that time, and frankly ever after, uh, has many people living there who hail from the South, from Virginia, and were probably Confederate sympathizers on the jury. The trial goes on for two months. It involves much of the same evidence that was presented against his mother, plus this direct contradiction between the witnesses in Elmira and the witnesses in Washington. And the jury ends up deadlocked. And they're unable to come to a uh, verdict. 
and Surratt walks free. Uh, we do have from John Surratt the text of lectures that he started to give in 1870. He went to South America for a short time. He had a little trouble evidently finding his feet. Uh, it's not surprising. It, he'd been through a good, good bit. And he was a sort of uh, controversial figure, to say the least. Uh, and his lecture series was only three lectures long. Apparently, the crowds did not come. Uh, he lectured in Washington, New York, and Baltimore. Uh, he may have had to give up the lecture series because he also was arrested for selling tobacco without a license. Um, but in the lectures, he claimed, yes, he was involved in the kidnapping. No, he had nothing to do with the assassination. Now, as a defense lawyer, that's certainly what I would advise him to say. Uh, but I find it difficult to believe he really was Booth's connection to the Confederate Secret Service. When after Booth is captured and they seize his luggage, they find a uh, Confederate cipher book in his luggage. Uh, and Surratt's the guy who made that happen. Uh, and he and Surratt were extraordinarily close for the three months uh, right up to the assassination. Uh, it, it, there is a happy ending of sorts. Uh, Booth finally hooks on to the Old Bay Line, which is a Chesapeake Bay uh, shipping line, uh, where he makes a career there, works there about 40 years, uh, has, a has a family, and he dies quietly in 1916. Uh, and my story in the Lincoln deception jumps off from all of this, uh, starting with John Bingham's deathbed disclosure about Mary Surratt's terrible secret. And of course, there have been a lot of theories about what happened. Uh, if anybody was behind the assassination, an early theory and one that I still get questioned about is, why wasn't it Andrew Johnson? He's the guy who became president. He had a motive. Well, I'm no fan of Andrew Johnson. I actually wrote a book about him when I, during which, during the writing of which I found myself unable to like him even a little bit. <laughs> but I don't think this is a fair accusation. After all, Atzerodt was sent to kill him. Uh, the response to that is, well, they sent the guy who could never do it. Well, that's, uh, that, that's hardly a guarantee. And I don't think that was Johnson's nature. Johnson was a very uh, strong-minded, inflexible guy who had made his commitment to the Union. And I think the notion that he would have uh, begun an assassination plot against Lincoln and other leading Union figures is just uh, wrong-headed. Um, I mentioned that there is a, there has been a, uh, right from the start, suspicions about Jefferson Davis and the Confederate Army and the Confederate government. Uh, some of that is focused on Judah Benjamin as well, the Secretary of War at the time. Uh, but that case had to be abandoned back then. Uh, in the 1870s, there was, a, uh, 1880s, I guess, there was an outbreak of speculation about Pope Pius IX, possibly in part because John Surratt ran there. Uh, and 
probably largely because there was a lot of anti-Catholic feeling still in the country. Um, it's not obvious to me that Pope Pius IX knew who Abraham Lincoln was, so I find this uh, wrong-headed. Um, others have tried to point to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Stanton was in charge of the investigation. It's sometimes pointed to him as how could Booth possibly have remained at large for 11 days? Somebody was not really trying or making sure that uh, he'd not be found. Stanton, running the investigation, was in the perfect position to destroy the evidence, that any evidence that came up that would point to him. Uh, this was uh, first pushed very hard by an exotic character in the 1930s named Otto Eisenschimmel. I find this also impossible to believe, largely on personal reasons. Uh, everything I've read about Stanton and understand about him is uh, points to him essentially loving Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and it is simply inconceivable to me that Stanton would have formed the conspiracy to, to murder him. So those are the theories discredited in different ways, which left me the opportunity, as I said, to make one up. <laughs> it was tremendous fun. As a writer of history, I am acutely conscious of the fact that most of history is silence. We really don't know most of what went on. Even the things we think we know often turn out not to be quite true. If nobody wrote it down, or sometime later if nobody took a photograph or a movie of it, we don't know about it. It's sometimes said that we only know history through the words that were left by the people there, the buildings they lived in, the objects they handled. And that's largely true. And as a writer of history, I feel that constraint, and that made the opportunity to write fiction, to explore things not said, um, and to be more speculative was, was really a lot of fun. Now, I couldn't possibly tell you, my publisher would be very unhappy if I did, uh, what I concluded Mary Surratt's secret was, but I hope you have a chance to check it out and decide what you think <laughs> Mary Surratt's secret was. Thank you. I'd be happy to take questions. We have people uh, with microphones. Yes. Were any of the uh, paternal Surratt's, the John and his kinfolk, associated with the conspiracy in any way? Uh, you mean John Sr.? John Sr. Uh, no. There's no evidence of that. How did the authorities uh, get onto these other conspirators as quickly as apparently they did? Uh, the principal source uh, is not disclosed in the records, but somebody told them to go to the Surratt boarding house. Uh, and we don't know who. They went there, and they found Mrs. Surratt, who was brilliant, and basically said, I don't know why you're here. I don't understand anything that you're concerned about. That nothing's ever happened here. And they went away. And then they rounded up a few other people, and then they went back two days later. 
And Mrs. Surratt was brilliant again and was intimidating the heck out of them. She was a smart lady and an educated woman. And uh, at that moment, when they're searching the place, Louis Payne showed up. <laughs> and he's been hiding for two days. He looks like heck. Um, you know, he's filthy. He's, you know, and they say, so why are you here? And he says, uh, uh, he can't come up with a good reason why he's there. And that makes them all very suspicious. And so that's when they arrest everybody in the house. And one of the guys who lived in the house, this fellow Louis Weichmann, uh, turns out to be the key witness who discloses the use of the house as the conspiracy, for the conspiracy. Do you have any speculation on what happened to Booth's diary and the missing 18 pages? I don't. Uh, you know, it was a practice at the time, if you needed a piece of paper, to just tear it out of a notebook. So it could be as simple as that as an explanation. There were two sort of stones in the shoe of Lincoln assassination uh, students that I avoided. That was one, which is what happened, what was in the diary. Well, I don't have the diary. I've got enough unanswered secrets. So I, I don't need to deal with that. And the other was the, the guy who was supposed to be uh, the guard who was supposed to be on the door at the theater for Lincoln's uh, balcony. Um, the guy was cleared back then. It seems bizarre, but he was. Apparently, it really wasn't a security detail, so I decided that was uh, a dead end as well. What is the historical evidence that Dr. Mudd was an assassin versus a Southern sympathizer? Well, he was certainly a Southern sympathizer. That's not really in dispute. Uh, his family has been trying to clear his name for 150 years. They've probably had a half dozen proceedings uh, that have been initiated, and none of them have succeeded. And I think they haven't succeeded because he was, well, guilty. Um, uh, he had been very instrumental in putting, helping put the conspiracy team together. Uh, the night of the assassination, Booth shows up. Um, and he has a broken leg, he mends the leg, uh, and then the next day, Union troops come and say, have you seen John Wilkes Booth? He says, no. He knows John Wilkes Booth. He's met him several times. Booth is a celebrity. He's somebody you remember that you knew. He's still got Booth's boot in his house, and the boot says JWB. It has a monogram. <laughs> um, and when Mudd says, no, I haven't seen him, that's, to me, his offense. That's obstruction of justice. He knew who he was treating, and he, uh, he lied about it. Yes, you mentioned Fort Leslie J. McNair. Um, you're a wonderful speaker, by the way. I'm really enjoying this. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to throw in a little catch. Um, McNair is now the trial room. Grant Hall, or Quarters 20, is now open for tours. It has been restored to the way that it looked during the trial. Thank you very we're much. We're working on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How accurate or otherwise is the movie Conspiracy? I think you mean The Conspirator? Conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I love the way they evoke the era. The lighting, the costumes, the, the language. I think they did a brilliant job of that. Their basic view is that Mary Surratt was sort of an innocent lamb uh, who was uh, railroaded, and I think that's totally wrong. Um, she was in the conspiracy. I mean, she didn't pull the trigger, um, but the key evidence against her, and I, I meant to mention this, but I didn't, 
Um, Booth came to see her on the day of the assassination. He, they were closeted. They often talked together, just the two of them. She then went to Surrattsville, to her tavern, told the manager there, two men will come tonight, give them these rifles that we have had stashed out here along with some whiskey. Just be sure to get it to them. Then she goes back to Washington. Booth comes by the boarding house again, and they meet again. And sure enough, when Booth is escaping, he stops at the Surrattsville Tavern and gets the rifles and the whiskey. So she's in it that day. And that's why it, I don't think it was in any way uh, a, a crime. There is a, a movie, Prisoner of Shark Island, that was done years ago, probably in the 30s, which portrays Dr. Mudd as, again, an innocent lamb, um, which I find also unpersuasive. Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Lincoln, goes into a lot of detail about the assassination and the Booth escape. Was most of his uh, accurate and, in fact, facts, and was there any collaboration with you in your research in doing that? I, I haven't studied every source he cited. I have looked through the book because any book that sells that many copies, I need to know what they're saying about <laughs> a topic that I'm, and maybe even figure out how he does it. Um, and my take was, uh, he, there are people who have sort of carped at little mistakes in the book, but I don't care much about those. I think that book is largely accurate. That was my, my take. So I, I think he mostly told the story the, the way we know it. What happened, if anything, to the soldier that shot Booth in the barn? Yeah. Uh, his name was, oh, I'm not going to get it right. It was Boston something. Boston Corbett. Um, a very strange guy. Uh, and it was hard not to get sidetracked onto Boston Corbett, frankly, but I, I resisted it. Um, he... Uh, really sort of lost his mind. Uh, he was a, uh, became very, he was a very religious fellow. Uh, he uh, was upset about the sins he was committing, so engaged in self-castration. Um, and then uh, ended up getting a job for the Kansas state government. <laughs> and finally uh, was living essentially in a, in a, one of those sod houses, you know, sort of below ground out in Kansas by himself as a hermit uh, and ended uh, sort of mumbling to himself. It, it, it's a sad story. One, one more question. I hate to be the last commenter, but in a situation of point and counterpoint, my great-grandfather uh -oh. was William Payne and was at one time arrested for being Lewis Powell. Mm -hmm. And so while you disagree with the Lewis Powell, <laughs> I'm a little concerned about the reference to pain. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I take your point. Thank you. <laughs> 